actually a lot of people used to ask how to get interested in hospice and palliative care communication as an entry point. That's where the action is. <laughs> That's where the most labors are in terms of the communicative work in the hospital and outpatient and just clinical environments in general. Nurses are exposed, if you will, to any of the challenges that patients or family are feeling, and they develop the closest relationships with patients and families. Welcome to Radical Nurse Talk, a podcast that explores nurses' communication in serious illness and situations as a radical act of care. I'm your host, Patricia Stragan. If you're a nurse, have you ever wondered about how to talk with a patient or family member? Ever wished that you had said something different or that some families were easier to talk to? If you're a patient or their family member and in a serious situation, you know that what a nurse says and how they say it can change your life. In other words, it can be radical. You can feel understood, overwhelmed, concerned, frightened or frustrated, and more. In today's episode, I speak with Dr. Elaine Wittenberg about nurses' communication with families and what's at the heart of those conversations, especially when people are in serious situations or illness. Dr. Wittenberg is co-founder of the Comfort Communication Project, a program of research that has informed an innovative communication curriculum for nurses to improve communication outcomes in cancer care. This includes online training modules and mobile applications that are being used widely across the United States. Elaine has published over 100 articles and books focused on communication and palliative and hospice care, family caregiving, and team dynamics. She's co-authored three books, which includes Communication and Palliative Nursing, a book that has been well-received by nurses in Canada and a personal favorite of mine. Welcome, Elaine. I am absolutely thrilled to have this opportunity to talk to you today. Thank you, Pat. That's such a kind introduction. Thank you so much. You are welcome. I am going to start by asking you how it is that you became interested in nurses' communication. Oh, gosh. That's a great question. Um, <laughs> I, you know, a lot of actually a lot of people used to ask how to get interested in hospice and palliative care communication as an entry point. So I'm glad to see we're beyond that now. And it's just how did I get focused more on on nurses? And um, the easy answer to that is that's where the action is. <laughs> that's where the most labors are in terms of the communicative work in the hospital and outpatient and just clinical environments in general. Nurses are exposed, if you will to any of the challenges that patients or family are feeling. And they develop the closest relationships with patients and families. And so that's why they get asked some of the more challenging questions. And in terms of working with families, they get invited into the family system or they get blocked from the family system. And as a result, they really have unique caring relationships with patients and families that are, I would say, almost ambiguous in nature. And when I say ambiguous in nature, I mean that there's not a set time for communication. There's not a set agenda for communication. Most often, the nurse is just doing some clinical work or they're present in the room, and that's when conversations come up. So it's unstructured communication compared to other providers. I'm so glad that you said that. Because I often think that that work is so critical, and yet 
it seems to be invisible in, in terms of how it's recognized within the system. It's not usually a checkbox that gets checked off. It's not a checkbox and it's not something easily defined, Pat. And that's where we get into trouble. And we think about communication as being ubiquitous and it's everywhere and it's all consuming. And some people relate it to a soft skill that you either have or you don't have. And we know from research that that's not true. There's a science behind communication and there are communication practices that you can employ that can strengthen the quality of your communication, which then, of course, has impact on the quality of relationships we have, which then impacts the quality of care that we provide patients and families. That is gold uh, to listen to. Uh, if only that was understood widely throughout the institutions that employ nurses. Yeah, one of the challenges is learning how to define it and explain it. Um, it's something that we provide in, in terms of teaching just communication students in general, that in order to be able to study communication and understand it, you have to be able to define it. And that's really what the majority of my work has been targeted is to come up with an understandable way to define and explain communication. And so often in nurses' work, as you said, it's unstructured. It is often unplanned. It's spontaneous, often happening at the time when other things are happening. So the nurse is working on multiple levels, perhaps technically, while drawing on knowledge to be able to respond uh, or guide a conversation. So definitely very complex work. It's really complex. Again, it's an idea of looking at communication is not just um, what we call a sender-based model, where we have we are a sender of a communication message and we're going to go in and we're going to deliver a message. And you can think of just a simple, if you're a parent, you really relate, can relate to this, you know, how many times have I told you to whatever, fill in the blank. And so it's the idea that just because we go in and deliver a message doesn't mean it's received and doesn't mean it's understood. And doesn't mean that it's going to result in action. And that's what a sender-based model focuses on, only the delivery of the message. In the work that I employ, we look at nurse communication as transactional. So we have an idea about a message, but it depends on who the person is we're speaking to, the context we're speaking in, and that it includes having a skill set to gauge understanding and acceptability. So that means that we have to adjust our messages and tailor our messages to who we're communicating to. And that includes and actually requires us to learn who the patient and family is that we're, we're speaking with. And so what you're saying is, although these are unstructured conversations, there's very intentional work being done by the nurse. In terms and the nurse of and, and, and in the patient and family as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, we always have intention, whether we carry it out directly or indirectly. And in my world, that would be verbally or non-verbally is a different story. And it's about learning to have a communication skill set where you are aware of all of the different ways that people communicate. Okay. So maybe we can talk about that. You've created a communication model for nurses called the COMFORT model. That's an acronym. Uh, we're going to touch on some aspects of that today, but can you first describe 
what that is and how it came about. Oh, yeah. That's like 20 years of my work, <laughs> 20 years of my life in a nutshell. Mm. Essentially, I had been doing a, a number of research studies with my colleague, Dr. Joy Goldsmith, who's at the University of Memphis. We are two peas in a pod in terms of our research. And we had spent a considerable amount of time interviewing patients and families, longitudinal studies involving families as they negotiated serious illness conversations and decisions, lots of time in hospice, uh, hospice inpatient facilities as patients were dying and families were saying goodbye, and lots of interviews with interprofessional staff who um, most of them were nurses, but also included social workers and chaplains. And we reflected on the medical education at the time, what was being offered, and realized that it wasn't comprehensive, that it didn't include the role, the unique role of the nurse, as we've just discussed, and um, that we could offer something more. And so this body of research culminated into what we call the comfort model, which has been made into a curriculum because now we provide training courses. And it is an acronym for the seven basic principles of health communication. And sometimes we say of palliative care communication because our roots are in palliative care and we believe that all providers are doing palliative care communication work. So the F of comfort stands for family, family caregivers, what it, and that's what we'll talk about today. The curriculum was funded through the National Cancer Institute in the United States and rolled out specifically for oncology nurses. And we taught about 400 oncology nurses across the United States, which was through a train the trainer program and then taught to roughly 10,000 other providers of 8,000 nurses. And since then has been um, proliferating in terms of different projects from different nurses at different levels of their career, from nursing students to DMP projects. And um, we're just now rolling out a large scale system-wide nurse communication training at a comprehensive cancer center. So we're so lucky. And through this whole process, everyone has told us, here's what works and here's what doesn't work. Here's what you're missing. And so the curriculum, the model, I'm using that synonymously, um, has changed as nurses have come to us and said, this isn't complete. You're missing this part of it. Or I tried this and it didn't work. And so what it has turned into is an ebb and flow. We figure out what, what they need. We go back, we talk to patients and families, we develop resources, we test those resources, and then we push it back out through the curriculum. It's really the best of, of all worlds. I think I'm the luckiest person in the world that I get to do this work. And I, I say that with an immense amount of gratitude for the nurses who have the courage to, to come forward and say, Elaine, have you thought about this? Or you're missing this? Uh, this is, I had a patient that this happened. And while anecdotally we think, oh, that maybe that's an isolated event, every bit informs the work that I do as a health services researcher and as a communication researcher to build materials that nurses can use when working with patients and families. What a wonderful legacy. Uh, just an amazing resource. And it points to also what happens when you start valuing that work that nurses come to you. So you show that it's valuable and then they take that and bring it back to you to improve their practice. And there's a real synergy there yeah. with the comfort model and the comfort program in general. 
And it's, there's a, again, there's just deep uh, appreciation and gratitude for the work that nurses do day to day. Our goal, and I say our meaning joy and myself is to develop the resources to make it, um, to make it as, I don't want to say improved because that would assume nurses aren't doing a good job, but to, to make it better, to mm-hmm. make it better for patient, family, nurse, and, uh, and other members of the interprofessional healthcare team. Yeah. And it also supports it. It's, it's, uh, you know, in, in addition to making it better, it's clearly a supportive act just to have that. Yeah. The, that's there. the true, the true roots of comfort, because we know from decades of nurse communication research that um, nurses feel hesitant and unprepared for conversations, particularly around end of life. And lots of changes are happening in terms of nursing education to fill in those gaps. So we're seeing a lot of movement and I'm just lucky that it happens to be the time that I'm uh, working on my career in this area. So that's really nice. Very good. I'd like to just continue in that vein around uh, nurses' concerns. What do you understand are the worries that nurses have around communicating with families around hard stuff or what is the hard stuff? We used to think about it in terms of breaking bad news was the terminology, at least academically we used and in terms of education programs. And that really positions the provider as a sender-based approach. Again, that's the idea that I know that this is going to be bad news for that patient and family. And research shows that that's not the case. Bad news or having a difficult conversation is both for the sender and the receiver. So it's for the nurse as well as the patient and family. You don't know what's difficult because you know it's difficult for yourself, but you don't know it's difficult for the patient and family. So you can't presume uh, the difficulty of the of the conversation just based on on how you feel about it. But particularly with patients, family members, we get uh, providers who are asked to integrate into the family system. And so what typically happens is they will uh, a nurse will get asked to convince the patient to do something, or the nurse will be asked to talk to the patient to get them to do a specific thing, or the patient will say, can you talk to my family member to get them to do a certain thing? Or they'll say, oh, I can't do the advanced directives because my spouse or my partner won't, uh, won't talk to me about it, or the children won't talk about it. So what happens is the nurse gets caught in this, uh, if you will, kind of visualize a triangle where at the top is the patient and the bottom is the nurse, and on the other side is the family. And so there can be one-way communication between nurse and patient and nurse and family, and then communication between the patient and the family member. And that's where we get into trouble because there's no, what uh, again, what we call transactional communication happening between all parties involved. And that's really where the conflict can emerge. The other thing we know just in terms of our caregivers is that our family caregivers experience what we have coined communication burden. And that is that talking about health and illness, serious illness, cancer, fill in the blank, is something that is burdensome to to our family caregivers. And that's because they have perceived interactions, how they perceive a talk will go or how they perceive a conversation will go 
they have experienced interactions. Those are the real interactions that happen to them with providers and with patients. And then they have anticipated interactions. So here's what I'm going to say to the doctor. Here's what I'll ask the nurse. And all of that negatively impacts their quality of life. So it's this, uh, the idea that communication is a stressor within the scope of the family caregiving role. And, And that's the unique idea that we bring to the table in terms of understanding communication and and that this burden has implications across what we would traditionally call the social the quality of life domains so physically our caregivers can experience physical communication burden by not being able to sleep because they're worried about a conversation they're worried about the test results but they're worried about how that's going to be conveyed to them So I need to have my phone. I'm going to have it by phone. I'm going to have a phone call. I got to have my phone on at all times. Um, Or they're worried about what those results will be and what that interaction will will look like. They're they're worried about it. You know, psychologically, they have stress and anxiety that are contributing to what uh, caregivers have said, you know, feelings of, of, of helplessness, particularly around diagnosis or making decisions or transitions in care. But they also experience social isolation, which is a communication burden. And then, of course, our spiritual aspect of communication burden, where they are struggling with uh, their sense of a God or a deity or a higher power, finding time for reflection, finding time for um, connection. And that contributes to communication burden as well. Uh, I'm sure some of our nurses listening will have had the experience of recommending a chaplain to come and being told no. There are things behind that. So again, we look at our work as addressing the communication burden of family caregivers. That's just so interesting. And it completely changes how we might think about our interactions. I want to give as concrete examples as I can, because sometimes I can get in the communication science of it. I want to make sure that it's understandable. So for example, we have family members who will say to the nurse, I just don't want to cry in front of him. I don't want to cry in front of him. I don't want to look weak or feel like I'm losing hope. And even having that conversation and being able to talk about it reveals a communication burden that the family caregiver is experiencing and something that needs to be supported. I don't want to say addressed because that implies that we have to, you know, dig out what that's all about, but supported, acknowledged, compassion as a ba- as a basic preliminary starting point. Right versus fixing it. It it yeah, it can't and I, be fixed. It can't be fixed. And and then the other part of that I would say is family dynamics within the family. So it's not just the nurse's communication with the primary family caregiver as related to patient care, but it's also when we have multiple family members who are not able to talk about the topics where you have maybe five family members and two of them are completely fine discussing advanced care planning, but three of them say, nope, we can't do it. She's not sick. It's, we're not, it's not dire enough. And so that also reveals a communication burden within, within the family that nurses are positioned to navigate in some way. That's so interesting. And I'm, I'm thinking about people who we tell to 
write down questions for the doctor and thinking about how that might be creating anxiety because the doctor only has a certain amount of time and you want to make sure that you have the right questions down. And in our seemingly supportive intervention to have them do that, it may be creating a lot of stress as well. Well, we do know that it is just on the academic research side, developing what we call the question prompt list is highly effective. It is a good tool. We do want patients and families to do that. Unfortunately, what we don't know, but anecdotally we do, is that patients and family don't get to ask all of the questions that they have because providers have structured encounters. And when I say provider, it could be a physician, it could be an advanced practice nurse, but somebody who's in that more direct communication pathway. The nurse has an adaptive communication pathway. So whatever questions don't get asked during the structured time, inevitably come to the nurse. And I think some of the complexity of communication and struggles for nurses is that they don't know if they should answer those questions. They don't know to what extent that ambiguity creates some of the communication challenges that nurses face today. So I don't wanna rule out the question prompt list It's highly effective and great. And that stress and anxiety from a communication perspective is an important part of the quality of care, right? That's, that is the communication element to providing care. I think that you're giving me and hopefully others some language to talk about communication. So often, you know, communication is thrown out there. Of course, everyone would agree it's important, but I think we're talking about different aspects today that you can situate in practice and that that's very helpful. It helps to uh, articulate. Exactly. Exactly. It's the whole idea of being able to name it. Mm -hmm. Right now we can say, well, I've got family caregiver problems. And if you go to a training uh, a training course, then you'll just hear family communication problems and challenges. What about the the disgruntled daughter that comes from California, that's one that's used in the (laughs) United States all the time. And I'm from California, which I think is so funny and ironic, but it is the storyline, the anecdotal narrative that's told. But what my work does is pinpoint where some of those challenges lie from a communication perspective. So it is that the naming and the science part of it. And the, the reason I keep going back to that as being important is because it gives us some structure for understanding and it gives us some predictability, which is a key thing that's important. We want some aspect of predictability in patients' behaviors and family members' behaviors because if we can predict what's coming, we can better prepare ourselves for how to respond, right? And, yes. and that's what that's what we do in our training courses and our training modules is we say, the goal is to give you a toolkit for being able to respond in a way that is, again, convey support. Yes. I want to, before we, I chase that a little bit more, okay. I, I just want to go back to the term that you used, uh, adaptive communication. And uh, that appeals to me to to hear it put that way, because it means it's dynamic, it's mm-hmm. in the moment. It's fluid. It's, it's fluid. Mm-hmm. And it's a result of an, an intellectual process that's happening, figuring out what's than, going on. 
More than that, Pat, it means that it's reiterative. It means it's repeated. And nurses know this already. I don't have to say it. How many times do you have to tell a patient or family member the same message? And it could be the diagnosis. It could be the treatment options. It could be discharge instructions. But they need to hear it over and over and over again until they understand it. And again, that's changing from a sender-based model that says, hey, I gave the information. I yeah. must be an effective communicator. All done. To understanding that it's, it's specifically for the nurse. The nurse's role is transactional. It requires it to be said, maybe every time you enter the patient's room or you see them in clinic, it just needs to be reiterated. And that's another aspect of the adaptive communication uh, characteristic. Mm -hmm. I want to return now to uh, your point about, you know, the family members, your comment about expecting certain things. So to me, that's different from saying, oh, you won't believe what happened with so-and-so. It's like, well, it's a pattern. We've seen this pattern before in others. And oftentimes those families get labeled as difficult or they can be labeled as difficult. I know what you're saying. And it's hard not to do that because the measuring stick we're using to understand whether a family is difficult or not difficult is really our own family system, is really our only family of origin because that's what we're going to use as a measuring stick to compare to. Um, the basis of our work comes from something called family communication patterns theory. And it's this idea that family communication patterns are developed in a family system long before a family member gets ill, long before a family member is sick or turning towards end of life. And illness in the family just makes these patterns more pronounced. That's all it does. It's like a spotlight. So family communication patterns shape how families share information about illness and how they engage each other in the family system around illness. The, the idea of difficult family members versus quote unquote easier family members to work with comes from the communication patterns that are already established within that family. And some families, family caregivers come from families with communication patterns that are more comfortable for us because they're like our family. That's one way we begin to gauge what, whether a family's complex or are quote unquote easy or, or less challenging. Uh, the science behind it is looking at what what comprises a pattern, and that's what my work does. Right. So I want I want to talk about that, and I think what you're saying is the communication patterns are difficult for us, yes. versus being a, a certain pattern. So maybe you can help us with that. Then, so can you talk about? what you have noticed about patterns. Yeah, so our family communication patterns for you and your family of origin, for me and my family of origin, come from two different dimensions. One is family talk, and family talk is the range of topics that we can discuss with one another. So I use the silly example, did you talk about sex in your family? Did you talk about puberty in your family? So this family talk pattern determines what's quote-unquote appropriate to discuss as a family. And when you think about health, that can be quite challenging. Do you talk about what, what your body bodily functions are and what they're doing? Something as simple as, do you fart in your family? You know, that, that's a, that reveals a communication pattern about health 
related to family talk. The other dimension is family obligation. And this is the way that our family members align their expectations for spending time together. So how much do you expect to to spend time together as a family? And how much do you expect your family to share their resources to you? Uh, And the notion of a family leader can be present in understanding family obligations. So oftentimes there's a matriarch or a patriarch that influences, I don't want to say dictates, influences a sense of family obligation. So a a simple example of that is if there's a birthday to be celebrated within your family, do you feel pressure to go to that birthday celebration or do you not feel pressure or is is there an expectation that you will be at that birthday celebration? Now, that in itself is an example that can be minute, like the birthday every year or the birthday, like the rounding birthday, a 20, a 30, a 40, you know, kind of thing. But if you feel an expectation to be there or family pressure to be there, that speaks to the dimension of family obligation. So we have family talk and family obligation. And across those two dimensions, you can range from high or low. And so what we get is four different combinations or four different types of family caregiver communication um, styles is really what we, we've identified it as. So a person's family communication pattern tell us a lot about how a family caregiver will or will not communicate about serious illness with the patient, other family members, and the nurse, because it doesn't come from the nurse and how much they like you. It comes from how they've done it in their family and how they've been socialized to talk about illness in their family. And, you know, just as a side note, this is what makes advanced care planning quite challenging. We've operated under the notion and really the assumption that if we bring the topic in, we can discuss it. And that's just not what the research shows, particularly for families and particularly for families that don't talk about illness as part of their family communication system uh, pattern. Yeah. So where does that leave us uh, as nurses forced <laughs> to actually have conversations with people in situations that they don't want to be in? Our model yeah. teaches four different family caregiver communication types and that each type has specific communication needs and therefore understanding what kind of caregiver type you're working with, you can adapt and adjust to their needs. Would you be able to give an example of one one of those? So one of the most common ones is what we call the manager caregiver. And the manager caregiver is heavily prepared, often brings their research with them to meet you, maybe has a binder or has an iPad with all the medical history. They've collected ideas for treatment plans because they've looked on the internet or they've talked to friends who are nurses or friends who work in hospitals or within any sort of health context, or they've talked to prior patients and other family members. So they find relief in overseeing medical action. And though that's why they have the the term, we've coined them the manager caregiver. So in terms of a communication interaction, you will find that these caregivers will speak for the patient. 
even though the patient is able to speak for themselves, they will answer questions because they're very knowledgeable and that's part of their role. They can be somewhat uneasy in terms of the psychological and emotional elements of maybe the patient or care or conversation topics. And we know from longitudinal research with manager caregivers that they really struggle to take care of themselves. So they are working very hard to provide quality patient care. They're all about action. That's the focus of the of any conversation is they want a decision and they want action. They want a plan. So they're um, they tend to be treatment focused. They come across as having very high health literacy. And initially, when we started this research, we thought, oh, of all of the four caregiver types, the manager caregiver has the highest health literacy. And then we did some survey work and interview work with manager caregivers. And we found out they actually do not have high health literacy. You think they do because they've done their research, but they have little understanding of the implications or applicability of treatment plans to their particular patient. So some nurses might find these caregivers as overbearing or difficult to weed through the information that they've brought, right? Like, oh gosh, they've they want a clinical trial, but this patient isn't anywhere near eligible for a clinical trial or, you know, so they have a lot of information, but they haven't necessarily gone through the quality of the, the information that they've brought. So how can, how can a nurse help a manager, a caregiver, right? How, what do you do in these interactions? We have found that the best way to interact with the manager, caregiver is to engage in the medical terminology that they use. It's extremely important for manager caregivers to come across as credible to the healthcare provider. They seek that. And they are dismayed when a healthcare provider goes to explain information in layman terms instead of the medical terms. And so one of the approaches that we say for partnering if you will, with a manager caregiver and establishing a relationship with them is to to go ahead and engage them in the medical terminology so that you are complementing their communication style. They see it as a compliment. They see it as an act of partnering with you and becoming a team member with you and equal with you in providing care and developing a treatment plan. If you meet with multiple family members in a man, when you have a manager caregiver, it's going to be very important for the nurse to solicit the input of other family members because they really struggle to provide and share their own thoughts and ideas. And, and this is because it's coming from a family system that has high family obligation as a communication pattern. Uh, the manager caregiver appears to be the self-appointed spokesperson. They've they've appointed themselves as the spokesperson for the family. And for some aspects of nursing practice, that's great. You've got a communication hub for the family, right? But it, when bringing multiple family members together and visiting with other family members, it's going to be very important to solicit their input and ideas. Because what we see happening is we have other members of the family system that are not sharing how they feel, which we believe, and this is anecdotal, there's no science behind this, but 
we believe that has impact um, in terms of anticipatory grief, particularly for end-of-life situations, and prolonged complicated grief for family members um, in manager caregiver systems who haven't been able to to speak up. Well, thank you for that wonderful example. And uh, we don't have time today to talk about all of the other ones, but I'm hoping that if people were interested in that, that uh, we could maybe pass along some reference for people. Absolutely. They can visit my website, communicatecomfort.com. There's a full list of resources. We have a, a caregiver's guide to, to communication and a number of other resources as well. Thank you for that. that that's wonderful. I uh, will mention it again at the end. I'm wondering if you can describe what you mean by health literacy. We talk about it all the time, but can you briefly describe what it is that we mean? I say yes, wishing that my colleague was here because Dr. Joy Goldsmith, this is her specialty expertise area. So my goodness, if she's listening to this, she'll probably go, what did you say? (laughs) I want to say it's comprehensive and multidimensional first off. It's much more than can you read or write? It is about can you understand what the information given to you? Do you have access to information? Are you able to find support for the information you received? Again, it's it's more than just understanding. It also includes access and it includes the context. You know, that's the one thing that's always missing when we talk about health literacy. And this came our, I guess maybe the better way to tell you about our interest in health literacy came from doing all these training courses. And we had nurses who would stand up and give examples and say, When I was a patient, I didn't get enough information because providers assumed because I was a nurse or my husband or partner was a medical provider or worked in a hospital that they didn't have to tell us anything. That was happening. And then second thing that was happening is we had a number of people in our own personal social network who were highly advanced in terms of graduate degrees who were diagnosed with serious illness and had a difficult time navigating the landscape of the healthcare system, understanding um, medication, differences between generic brand and brand names. And we just realized health literacy is not a singular aspect of a person demographically but it's the context of everything else. And in fact, when we teach about health literacy, we always teach, again, that the idea of what is difficult or not uh, comprehensible is not based on your education. It's based on your life experiences that then lead you to conclude whether or not something is understandable. And when it's personal, it's more difficult to understand. I have had my own experience in my family just this year where somebody was diagnosed with a serious illness. I knew it was appropriate for palliative care. Those conversations were difficult within my own family system, even though this is the area that I work. And I would bet many nurses listening to this podcast would say the exact same thing. Yes. I can. I, I think that, that that's very common. It's very instructive to our practice to think about the way the context 
affects somebody's ability to appreciate what's happening, to comprehend it, and then and then to take action on it. Because I think that's another aspect of health literacy, isn't it? Sort of that you can actually it's actionable. Yes, absolutely. When we teach about health literacy, we teach about cultural humility and plain language as two um, communication strategies and resources for bridging that gap. How would you describe plain language? Plain language is a number of different things. It is the way that we first approach patients and families in terms of finding the name that they would like to be called, um, which has now expanded into pronouns, preferred pronouns. But it also includes strategies in terms of basic communication approaches, such as using a first name to speak with someone. But of course, that that is also if it's culturally appropriate. In the United States and the Midwest, you would not use a first a first name. Um, you would Mr. or Mrs. and the last name. But using a name to specify information directed to somebody in particular. Plain language strategies also include speaking slower, pausing, using short sentences, following up with our oral instructions with written instructions. I think now with advances and with technology, there are videos that can be referred to that are more helpful, especially with family caregivers. And then one thing that we teach specifically is how to explain medical terms, common symptoms, palliative care in language that is common to people. And when I say common, in the United States, the Centers for Disease Control says, that should be at a sixth grade level. And that's really difficult. So one of the resources we have that's on our website is the Plain Language Planner for Palliative Care. It's available in English. It's also available in Spanish. And it explains in plain language some of the common symptoms. And if it's just a simple example uh, would be the way that we talk about our body, right? In the medical community, we would say breast. But in somebody's house, they would say a boob. And there's many other terms for it. Uh, But the idea in plain language practice is to take the terms that we know in our field and bring them to a level that somebody who's not in our field can understand. It's a really strong skill set to have. It doesn't come easily. I can tell you the first time Joy and I went to do the plain language planner resource I just described, we thought, oh, we've got this. Oh, no big deal, you know. And there's a number of different tests that you can do to find out what's called the readability of a, of a document. And the readability of the document that we produced on the first try was still at a 21st grade level. <laughs> 21st. <laughs> we thought we did so well. Yeah. Then we had to yeah. do different iterations. And I'll tell you what, the, the thing that we do now is we test it with sixth graders. Oh, what a great idea. It, that must be just fun. The, you know, that's the way to do it. So it makes me think... Or it reminds me that our assumptions about the other or the material that we have to either talk about or share um, in written form, we need to be checking. We need to check our assumptions. Oh, that, absolutely. That, yeah. Absolutely. And and so it and you know, when you're talking about grade level, it seems to me, you know, on so many surveys uh or things that that you fill out that are paying attention to your demographics, the years of education are what 
are asked for. And so it's not adequate to it's be. It's not able. adequate at yeah. all. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you for that. That would lead to another long conversation, I think. I think that we can wrap up here now. I'm hesitant to do that because this is just so compelling, <laughs> this conversation, um, and so affirming around the critical nature of nurses' relational work and the challenge that it is to actually engage in it. I'm wondering, maybe we can start to wrap things up with any reflections that you have from nurses around, do they have time for this? Is this just another expectation that it's put on them around uh, communicating um, more effectively? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't don't think it's an expectation um, for nurses. I think it's their own expectation. And it speaks to the heart of nurses. That's I think that the majority of nurses want to be doing that work as a natural extension of the care that they provide. And they're and they're genuinely interested in doing the communicative work. They're already doing it. We just invite them to invite patients and families into the communicative work. I think that when nurses are exhausted and fatigued and have compassion fatigue, for example. Um, there's an inclination to block communication tasks because it's so much more of the emotional labors that nurses do. And so we hope that by empowering them with the communication skills and an arsenal, a toolkit, if you will, that it will become easier or more natural or more comfortable, I think is what I want to say, more comfortable in engaging communication practices that invite patient and family to share some of the challenges. There are good resolutions that can come when we open the lines of communication between patient, family, and and provider, uh, not just the nurse, but all members of the healthcare team. While it is stressful to have those conversations for all parties involved, the relief that can come from it far exceeds the difficulty in the task. And we all know that from any difficult conversation you've had to have, whether you're breaking up with somebody or asking to borrow money or asking for a raise, those things that we traditionally would see as difficult conversations, that we always feel so much better after we've had them. We're not necessarily happy about the outcome, (laughs) but we do feel better that we've had the communication interaction. And that's really what um, we hope to empower nurses with with the work that uh, Joy and I have been doing. Well, thank you for that work. It's it's just such a a gift to the profession and and to patients and families, I think. It gives language to the work that I think can be useful in terms of articulating, you know, the complexity of nursing work beyond a psychomotor skills like yeah. wound care and starting an IV that you know this is this is complex work so thank you for that as well again i hate i hate to wrap this up but but i will so maybe we'll talk another time thank you pat I, thank you so much for inviting me i i really love the opportunity to talk about my work and to spread it i my goal is and my hope is that um, n- other nurses will be interested, will reach out to me and find these resources useful. 
Thank you so much. You're so welcome. And can you just, as we go, remind us of the website again? Yes, my website is www.communicatecomfort.com. And there you will find all sorts of free resources, especially for nursing faculty members, our free app, our free guides, the plain language planner. And if you need to get in touch with me, of course, there's a a button there to do that as well. And I'm more than happy to help for any listeners out there that need some resources, not just in improving their own work, but perhaps in teaching or other resources too. Thanks for listening. You can reach me or information about this episode on our website, www.radicalnursetalk.com. The producer editor of this podcast is Jeremy Ramos Foley, social media by Amy Strachan. And if you'd like to support the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. Join me next week for more Radical Nurse Talk. In the meantime, have a radical conversation in your practice. It can change lives.